0: News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening
1: right now. This is Mornings with Simi.
2: Well, we're watching and waiting to see what's going to happen with Hurricane Ian. It did hit western Cuba. This is in the last 24 hours, and it has left behind a trail of destruction. And we're talking about now it's a Category 4 storm, very close to being a Category 5, heading towards making landfall in Florida. And that is where we find our Reggie Cicchini, normally our Global News Washington correspondent. Right now, he is our hurricane correspondent. He joins us now. Hi, Reggie. Good morning. Where are you?
3: Uh, Right now, realistically, I'm in the backseat of our our cruiser, and we are driving towards Sarasota, which uh, is a little further south than we had originally planned. We were in Tampa yesterday, uh, and then the storm path moved, and so did we. And here we find ourselves driving... Uh, with ponding on the road. There have been some down bits of palm trees and we are literally the only vehicle traveling.
2: Wow. Okay. That must be eerie. So is everything kind of been batten down in the hatches and, and have people left town or what do you see?
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, two and a half million people across the state of Florida were put under an evacuation order. There's a lot of zones, kind of zone A through E, as you make your way through some of the coastal cities in Florida. When we were in Tampa, zones A and B were mandatory evacuation. There were 400,000 people under evacuation orders, uh, and they were told that if they did not leave, help would not likely be getting to them if they found themselves in a predicament after the storm had cleared out. Uh, And we're seeing that city after city now, uh, because there is a real fear here that yes, the storm is going to come through potentially as a category five and the winds will be strong, but it's the water that creates the biggest concern here because uh, there is such a huge risk for storm surge, not just through Tampa, but right down in towards the Fort Myers area. And that storm surge could exceed seven, eight, nine, maybe 10 meters.
2: That, that's pretty scary when you think about that, how big this storm is. So uh, they, they're making preparations for this, but what area are they most concerned about in that zone that you were talking about, Reggie?
3: So the biggest concern right now is uh, from basically where we're headed in the Sarasota area down through Fort Myers. That could see some of the biggest uh, uh, bits of storm surge and rainfall totals could in localized areas be upwards of maybe six or 700 millimeters. That is a ton of rain to get and This system is moving incredibly slowly. Uh, The meteorologists say that this is, you know, roughly in that 10 to 15 mile an hour range. So this system could really park itself over Florida. For a couple of days. And then once it makes its way through, yes, the lingering threat remains because of the storm surge through parts of south cent- uh, southwestern Florida, but central areas of the state are also uh, expected to experience hurricane conditions. And that includes the areas around Orlando and then as it makes its way towards the Atlantic coast. So this really is becoming an entire statewide problem. And on top of that, there are already power outages across southern Florida. More than 130,000 customers are without power. Tampa was proactively shutting power off to ensure that uh, they'd be able to deal with recovery a a bit quicker. And the the, the reality is Florida is not a stranger to, to hurricanes. It has been over the last couple of years. It's been since 2018. But the southwestern part of Florida in the region from Sarasota down to Fort Myers rarely ever sees a hurricane. They saw Hurricane Charlie a couple of years ago, the Tampa area. It's been more than a century since a hurricane showed up.
2: Oh, wow. Okay. And I always tend to think it's very serious when all the theme parks shut down because that's what happened, right? They preemptively shut everything down.
3: Yeah, I mean, look, it's not just the the theme parks, all of Disney, uh, uh, Universal, they've all closed down through Orlando, but it's almost impossible to just get into Florida. Last night, uh, around 5 o'clock, Tampa International Airport shut down. We're about an hour away from Orlando, taking its last flights in at 10.30. Uh, Sarasota Bradenton, St. Pete Clearwater, those airports closed down last night. So it is nearly impossible to get anywhere to the central and western part of the state. Miami is still open, the northern parts through Jacksonville. Those airports are still open, but even trying to navigate around we were turned around trying to get out of tampa because they've closed some of the causeways uh that run over the open areas uh, of water simply because travel is so dangerous they are not taking any um any risks with this storm simply because it is so massive the 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 meteorologist that we were uh that we heard from earlier today said that the the windstorm right now where the category uh four winds are the internal part of this hurricane is the same size as the entire hurricane of Hurricane Charlie, which is one of the last ones to have blown through this area. So this is a massive, massive storm.
2: Okay, Randy, well, now I'm worried about you. So what is your plan? Where are you going to be for the next 24 hours?
3: We, well, I mean, we still have a place in Tampa that we can escape back to uh, if something happens. We have a place waiting for us in Sarasota. We have all of the gear that we need. We took the precautions. We have all of the equipment that we're going to need. Um, you know, we've done this before. We know how to get through this. We know how to ensure that we have the batteries to ensure that everybody else knows what's going on as well. Uh, you know, we've, 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 we've prepared for this, uh, and it's simply a matter of here it is. It's happening now. Oof. Let's get into it.
2: Well, listen, stay safe, okay, and we'll be checking in. Thank you. Thank you. That's Reggie Chikini, our global news regular Washington correspondent. Right now, our Florida correspondent, or I should say, our Hurricane Ian correspondent. As you heard him say, they are actually heading towards Sarasota, the area that will be likely hit here. Uh, they're moving around a bit because um, you know they they don't know exactly sure where it's going to make landfall. But this thing is huge, and I know we get used to hearing about oh hurricanes, you know, arriving, making landfall in the United States. Yes, that's true. But this one is so much bigger. Uh, If it strengthens to a Category 5, and it is very close to that, it would be the largest hurricane to hit, um, you know, make landfall in the United States in 30 years. And there are an awful lot of people, a lot of homes that are in the way of this thing. And we're talking about Florida. It's a very populous state here, right? So we are watching that carefully. In Cuba, meanwhile, they are without power. Pretty much the entire uh, country of Cuba is without power. Something like 11 million people, and they're trying to get that back going again. So there's not a lot of idea of of the damage yet because we haven't seen it, but that is still to come. But Hurricane Ian is moving towards Florida, and we will continue to keep you updated on that situation.
3: Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
2: Time for us to check in with our Raji Soho this morning. And first up, Raji, I'm just jealous that you just happened to mention before we went on the air here that you were at the Scholastic Book Fair, and that was a highlight for me all during my elementary school years. Love it.
4: I am living off the high of yesterday's Scholastic Book Fair. Still, it was so much fun. amazing. And a funny thing I overheard, Simi, was one of the kids asking mommy and daddy if these all came from Amazon because the what? only way that this kid had received their books previously was in the mail. So I thought this was an oh opportunity goodness. for kids to see, oh yeah, books, like you can just go into bookshops and buy them. And this is a book fair. Okay, like first bookshop. off, their
2: parents need to get that kid to a bookstore stat.
4: <laughs> come on. No kidding. Yeah. It was so special. Again, this is one of those events that just hasn't happened over the pandemic. So it was really, really fun to do that again. I loved it. Oh, that's Absolutely awesome. Loved it. But you I had know, something I happen you. to you too. I did. Yes. It was a funny experience, a kind of an eye opener really. So, you know, people talk about misinformation around vaccines and COVID-19. I haven't personally had too many uh, conversations with people that I don't know uh, personally about these kinds of things, about misinformation. But yesterday I saw a naturopath practitioner because I told you I uh, broke my ankle. And so I'm just trying to fix everything and find out what's going on and how to improve it. So I saw this naturopath, and the naturopath shared with me a lot of misinformation, uh, a lot of opinions about the vaccine that. Uh, were not based on peer reviews.
2: Okay, first of all, did you ask for this information? Because you're getting your ankle treated, so why did they need to weigh
4: in on this? Because, Simi, I ask a lot of questions <laughs> of whomever I'm meeting. That's whether it's the banker or the baker. I am that lady who asks a lot of questions. I'm just kind of always having conversations with anybody that I meet, and so yeah, I did ask some questions, but I didn't know that it was going to lead down this path. Now, the naturopath uh, cited some websites that I should check out. And I did check out those websites. They weren't scientific. But the reason that I wanted to mention this all was because the rabbit hole that they sent me down and researched later was a real eye opener about how persuasive these misinformation sites are and how easy it, it can be for people to get wrapped up in it. So for me, it was a lesson to personally engage when we disagree with someone's opinion. You know, not villainize them. Try and see their viewpoint. Try and understand why they see it that way. Because we're in a time where people are defending one side or another with all their life. And I just think that's a dangerous path to tread. Now, I disagreed with this person about everything that they shared, but I didn't villainize them in the process. I heard what they had to say. And it was basically this invitation to get curious, you know?
2: Yes, I can see that. Um, My feeling is always like at this, I don't know why we're still arguing about this also, because it feels like with all the mandates now being lifted, there's no reason to keep arguing about this, right? And in the end, some people did it and some people didn't, and we can move on now. Like we don't need to keep relitigating this. We don't need to keep going over. Let's try to look for common ground as opposed to things that we still disagree with. This person knew this is something that a lot of people disagree with. There's no need to keep talking about this.
4: Yeah. It's time to kind of leave it behind yes. us and move on. Yeah, absolutely. I, I want to tell you about another thing that I did yesterday. Yesterday was eventful. So, you know, we've had that recent announcement, right, from the government that childcare costs are going to be cut significantly. So currently families pay on average anywhere from around $500 to 2000, some people a little bit more than that. It all depends on what kind of care they have. So that's a, per month, right? So that's being reduced uh, by four or 500 a month. So parents are obviously thrilled by that, right? But now there's a real concern out there now and a lot of discussion about what's going to happen to the quality of that care. So I listened in on a virtual assembly meeting last night, that was two hours, about this new focus, and some call it the, the next hurdle in childcare, which is this target of getting it down to $10 a day. So there were advocates in the assembly who have been working on this initiative for the last decade. They've been working really hard to interest towards that goal. And they see that we are getting closer to it. But interestingly, Simi, among the over 100 people that were in the town hall about this topic, uh, stated a major concern for we want quality over considering the price tag. We do not want to compromise the quality of our childcare. This was a resounding message across the board.
2: First of all, they don't have to opt into the system if they don't want to. Nobody's forcing them to take $10 a day childcare. They can go find other, if they want to pay more expensive childcare, that's entirely up to them.
4: Yeah. So what's going to happen is that if we move towards a $10 a day daycare fee and the capacity in a room increases, the workers might have less uh, control in the room. They might have more kids per worker. I thought this was
2: limited, though. My understanding is that there are still rules about how many people per how many children per worker.
4: There are Simi, but then as daycare becomes more popular, because we do expect, and the province has said this, they expect that the demand for daycare is going to go up because it's becoming more affordable. Yeah. But we just don't have those childcare spaces. We just don't have them and we don't have the workers. So there is going to have to be some compromise there. And I just found it interesting that, you know, parents who are working hard and your childcare these days, it's like a mortgage, right? I know this is going to change December 1st, but right now it is equivalent to a mortgage for some families. You got two kids or more through the system. That's a lot of money. And I just found it really interesting that most folks are like, I one thing I don't want to compromise on is quality. I'm willing to pay extra for that. And we're talking about people who are working class mm-hmm. families, right?
2: I mean, if they want to pay more for it, then I guess they're welcome to pay more for it, right? <laughs> then that would yes. free up those other spots.
4: Yeah, we'll see. I, there's currently it's really hard in a lot of districts in Metro Vancouver to find that childcare, and mm. I think it's only about to become even more challenging now that the demand for, for childcare spots will increase.
2: That might be a whole new era of child, area of childcare that might actually open up. Um, Raji, for thank sure. you for that. Thanks, Simi. This is
0: Mornings with Simi,
2: a visit from the Prime Minister, and of course, the cleanup continues in Port au today in Newfoundland and Labrador. And boy, is that ever a lot of work! Let's get an update now with Global National reporter Ross Lord, who is there. Hi, Ross.
5: Good morning, Simi.
2: What is it like there? Is the cleanup getting any better? How's it going?
5: Uh, it's a real slog. Um, you know, as we were discussing uh, a few minutes ago, people are still absorbing the shock. You know, if you stand next to, to these debris fields, the devastation from all of these houses that were destroyed, um, it's hard not to be, be sort, of, sort of stunned or paralyzed by it. And then you magnify that by, you know, the fact that this was someone's house or someone they know or love their house. Um so people are are still absorbing um you know the, the the leaders the officials who are going to help clean this up are still sort of sizing up the extent of it uh, a group of military reservists has been here for a couple of days analyzing uh, what they can do to help uh some more soldiers came in last night we've seen a few of them walking around this morning so uh i think you know that's going to set the stage for for more action, and, and you, you see these big, big uh, backhoes and, and, and machines scooping up debris, but uh, I, I think uh, and anticipate that, that that will be accelerated here in, in coming days.
2: So I know at Puerto Basque is getting a lot of attention, I think, because of those pictures that everybody saw, but what's it like in other communities?
5: I think that's an important point because the devastation here is unlike anything we've ever seen from a storm. We've covered a lot of storms over... A lot of years. Mm -hmm. Um, And yesterday we we got to see um, another community east of Portabasque called Burnt Islands. Um, You've been to the province, and and you know how beautiful it is here. And it seems like the most lovely little coastal villages get hit the hardest. And and they got hit big time by Fiona's storm surge. Uh, You know, people telling us it was like this 40-foot high Wall of, of what looked like snow uh, almost, but it was just this massive sea foam attacking. And, and we talked to a woman whose house was just pancaked, and, and she's right beside the debris, just talking about how hard it is to comprehend that that's her house. She, she took measures to fortify it, she, she boarded up her windows uh, before she left on Friday night, knowing that Fiona was approaching. Um, didn't matter. Um, and now she, you know, the house where she raised her two children is, is gone. And then, and then the big machine is scooping up the debris and she's walking over there pulling out, uh, various items, um, and, 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 you know, watching it all with, with with her husband's working in another part of Canada. So, you know, the neighbors are very helpful, but still a lonely feeling for her.
2: I can imagine. Yeah. So is there any help Ross for these people? Will there be government assistance?
5: Well, governments, uh, the province and the federal government, are very quick to promise assistance, um, you know, whatever is needed, uh, including assistance for homeowners who are not insured. Um, you know, the whole insurance quagmire with, with all of these uh, so-called acts of God is uh, extremely frustrating. Um, we've seen this many times over the years. And uh, if you do have insurance, often... Uh, your insurance company says, well, this is an act of God and it's not covered. So uh, governments are indicating that they they will help those people as well. Um, the Newfoundland and Labrador government is announcing a $30 million immediate financial package this morning. Um, the prime minister is coming. He has suggested that anyone who needs help will get it. Uh, we also know from having covered more than a few of these that you know, the talk can be fast, but the action rarely is. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess we, along with everyone else, is hoping that uh, this is not bogged down by bureaucracy and these people are not forced to, to navigate, uh, you know, government program systems, which can be difficult at the best of times, never mind these days, right. um, you know, in order to get the help that they need and deserve.
2: And especially with winter coming, too. Uh, Ross, thank you so much for your
5: time. All right. It's great to talk to you.
2: That's Ross Lord, Global National Reporter, who is in the area of port basque in Newfoundland and Labrador as the cleanup continues. A visit from the Prime Minister today and uh, some assistance provided by the Premier of Newfoundland and Labrador, but they're hoping that more is coming. This is Mornings with Simi. So this weekend, things are really going to change when it comes to travel in this country. As we heard, federal government removing um, all COVID-19 travel rules as of October the 1st. And very specifically, that means the mask mandate on airports, planes and trains. Now, not everybody is happy about that, right? Maybe some travelers think that's a good idea. And by the way, they're still encouraging people to absolutely wear a mask if you're more comfortable doing that. But, you know, a lot of health experts out there are saying this might not be a great idea, might have felt political pressure to do this, but is this the right health-wise thing to do? Joining us on a talk more about this is UBC's Dr. Sarah Otto. Dr. Otto is a member of BC's Independent COVID Modeling Group, also an evolutionary biologist at the University of British Columbia. Thank you so much for joining us. Good morning. So what did you think when you heard about this? Were you surprised?
1: I was not surprised. I I have known that there was grumbling and there was um, a move afoot, and so it was just a matter of when. What I did think was that the the Arrive Can app would go down, um, but I thought masks would remain. Uh, As Dr. Um, Theresa Tam has said, masks should be the last level of protection that we let down, and I think that's right because masks are something that we can do with a fairly minor impact on individuals, especially, you know, when we're in closed and confined spaces like airplanes, trains, or buses. And they do provide a layer of protection for everybody on the bus, not just the person wearing it who might be worried about catching COVID, but for everybody. People that don't know they're infected right now can be walking around and um, and passing COVID on to others. The rapid antigen tests often don't catch COVID in the first few days, When people are really quite infectious. And so it is masks do help reduce transmission and reduce mortality rate we've seen around the world. And, you know, one thing I would say is we don't need masks if there really aren't that isn't that much COVID in the environment. But the problem is right now there's a lot of COVID. We're at one of the highest levels of COVID circulation um, in the entire pandemic at the moment. Um, But the problem is because so few people are testing, we we don't see those numbers. And so it's very easy to be complacent.
2: Is BC, do you think, particularly vulnerable on this front, too? Because I bet a lot of people, they may have, if they they got that booster, they got it, what, last December and January?
1: Exactly. And so what we're seeing right now is that BA5, this third Omicron wave, is actually not declining. It's kind of petering along and we're, we think that that's be at a high level and that's because it's being fed by individuals who got either got boosted or got infected with one of the during one of the earlier omicron waves but now they're losing that protection that the immune system gives whenever it's recently had an exposure And so, so our population is kind of increasingly becoming susceptible. And of course, we're going inside more indoor confined spaces. And so this is giving COVID plenty of room to continue um, infecting others.
2: All right. So then are you concerned, Dr. Otto, that people are just, they're going to hear the recommendation, oh yeah, you can still wear masks and we think you still should, but are people actually going to do
1: it? Exactly. I mean, I think we can already see in confined spaces like buses that the recommendation to wear masks is not strong enough. It's not being understood well enough. And I I think that's partly because we need to better explain just how many uh, how much COVID is around at the moment. And in a recent um, serology study from BC it was estimated that COVID um, cases, there were 92-fold more fold more COVID cases than we knew about. And so I, I think that making it clear that we're really at one of the highest levels of risk of infection is very important. Now, I should say that the hospitalization rate hasn't skyrocketed. Um, And that's a great sign. That's saying that a lot of people are getting COVID. They're getting sick. They may have to stay home from work for a prolonged period of time. They may get long COVID. And that is substantial and severe in many cases. But the death rate and the hospitalization rate aren't as high, given the numbers of infections at the moment.
2: It's so tricky, though, isn't it? Because you probably Uh, got a lot of people who are saying, oh, you know, I had it and it was no big deal. OK, fine. But we don't know what the long term effect is, do we?
1: That's right. And we don't know. We still don't know a lot about long COVID. It, it, you know, it could be like Russian roulette that every time the gun fires, every time you get COVID, you have another chance of long COVID. Or it could be that if you if you've had it and you didn't get long COVID, maybe you're fu- you're fine and you're not susceptible to that. Something as fundamental as that Yeah, that seems so simple, though,
2: right? That seems so simple, but but I think, no, we don't. And people have just, I feel like, have moved on and they don't want to think about this anymore. They want to think about COVID as just being like getting
1: cold. Yes, yes and no. You know, even with the flu, we know when the flu season is. We know when there's a lot of circulating flu and we all take more precautions with the flu, Well, right now is one of our worst COVID seasons. And so I think that's the message that I'm trying to say. Right now is actually really high risk and increasing risk because of going indoors and people's immunity waning. And for those reasons, go get boosted. I don't think we're actually having much uptake at the booster, the vaccination lines. And that can help, you know, um, prevent you from getting COVID in this current wave.
2: Do you think we waited too long for that? Like there was obviously, I think, an interest in getting that fourth shot, but they put it off thinking, oh, we'll wait for fall to ramp up the campaign. But I feel like I haven't heard a lot about it.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, and I I think there's a challenge because with people not realizing how much COVID there is around, they, again, may not be that incentivized to go and get vaccinated. So that's the main message for me today, is that there's a lot more COVID in our community uh, almost any other time. The only other time that was this high or higher was in January or February in the first Omicron wave.
2: Now, is it having an impact on hospitals? You said that it's kind of, you know, it's out there, it's moving along, it's staying at that same level. But what is that doing to our healthcare system?
1: You know, even hospitalization, I I know it's putting a strain on our healthcare system because GPs and other um, healthcare workers are still seeing individuals concerned about the um, long-term COVID um, um, impacts as well as these kind of lingering symptoms that many people still have from COVID.
2: Are you worried that people's immunity because of that booster that they may have gotten way back when has started to wane and, and now we're kind of heading into that cold and flu season?
1: Yeah. So if you haven't, if you are called up to, um, been since your last um, shot, go in and register, and you can register and get a vaccination. I think that that right now they're in their fifties plus. I think they're going to go down in younger ages really quickly, and going in and getting that booster just helps um, ramp up your immunity and protect you in this next wave. If you had a booster, I had—I think I had my booster in January, and yeah, that's lo- long, long, long since two, um, the point where immunity would have waned. There, but there's, it's important to know that immunity wanes at different um, uh, levels, and the immunity that I'm talking about is immunity and protection from infection. There's still plenty of arms of my immune system that are well taught and trained Infecting cells but that's after the infection.
2: Right. Still so much that we don't know. Um, thank oh, you so much for your time this morning. You're welcome. Thank you so much, Amy. Appreciate that. That's Dr. Sarah Otto. Who's, she's an evolutionary biolo- biologist at the University of British Columbia, also a member of BC's independent COVID modeling group, concerned uh, because of the the lifting of the mask mandate for travel, which happens Saturday, right? And I'm sure airports and airplanes are dealing with that right now, that, yeah, it's still in effect for a couple of more days. These will expire midnight Friday. So if you travel on Saturday, you don't have to worry about it. And even though they've said, we recommend that people continue to wear it. You just know a lot of people are going to say, you know what, forget it. I'm not doing this anymore. And people with waning immunity because, you know, maybe the third booster shot has worn off. And there's just a lot to be concerned about health-wise as we head into a very busy cold and flu season out there. And uh, I don't know, have you got even gotten that, you know, email from the government about, you know, booking that next shot for yourself? Uh, Is that happening? I don't think there's a lot of uptake going on out there. So if you want to weigh in, simmy at cknw.com.
0: This is Mornings with
2: Simi. You know, waiting for any kind of health care is nerve-wracking. But imagine that you've had a cancer diagnosis and you need more medical imaging to determine your course of treatment. That is more than nerve-wracking. Radiologists in BC are sounding the alarm about how long patients have to wait for medical imaging in this province. Dr. Charlotte young hing is president of the BC Radiological Society and Dr. Yong-Hing spoke to Global News about the consequences of those delays.
6: There are hundreds of
4: thousands of patients waiting for medical imaging. Because of these delays a lot of
6: conditions including cancer are presenting later if the situation continues there's going to be even more burnout and the patients are going to be the ones who suffer
2: okay that is just so wrong so stressful and also can you imagine with cancer diagnosis having to wait longer after you've already been told that you have this meanwhile ubc clinical professor dr paula gordon has also talked about those consequences and explained what they often have to say to people who are looking to get imaging done at their clinic when they call the office and they hear when our bookings are, we we actually recommend that they try to find somewhere else to do it. Of course, they're worrying the whole time, you know, is that cancer spreading to my lymph nodes? Is it going to other parts of my body? And there are some high grade, meaning rapidly growing cancers, where a couple of months can make a difference. It's a huge difference. If When you hear the word cancer, you think, you know what, get it out of me now. Like, let's deal with this right now waiting just to get more pictures taken of it, getting medical imaging done, it's just an unacceptable situation. And so now these medical professionals are asking for urgent action. They are sending a letter. They have sent a letter, 26 doctors did, to Health Minister Adrian Dix last week. They're asking for a meeting to express and talk about their deep concern for the estimated 1 million patients waiting to see a specialist. Now, we have reached out to talk to the health minister about this. We're hoping to chat with him at some point this week. Right now, though, let's talk with Shirley Bond, BC Liberal, MLA, and health critic. Thank you so much for being with us.
0: Always a pleasure, Sammy.
2: Are you hearing stories like this, too?
0: Absolutely, and I, I couldn't agree with your characterization more. The word cancer is terrifying for people in British Columbia. And to think that uh, waiting for medical imaging, which helps to lay out the course of treatment, uh, is being delayed, that people are having to wait weeks and weeks, um, is an absolutely unacceptable circumstance in British Columbia. And so, you know, first we have a group of specialists writing to Minister Dix, and then we have the radiologists specifically adding to that concern. And you know, their, their request is reasonable. Let's start with a meeting and start working on how we're going to solve these issues. I find it astounding that they've had no response to that.
2: I think a lot of patients would probably find that astounding, too. Now, it used to be that we needed the equipment, right, that we needed to have more mm-hmm. machines that were capable of this. But that's not the issue anymore. So what is it?
0: Well, it's a combination of things. And one of the things that I, I you know, certainly I've learned over the course of, of my time as health critic, uh, you know, it is an interconnected system. So every single part of the system is under pressure at the moment. And, and that is part of the problem. So we've got burnt out, demoralized healthcare workers. We we have to concentrate on retention. And that's one of the things the radiologists and specialists have said. First, we have to keep the the specialists we have. Secondly, we need to train more of them. And, you know, Simi, one of the things that I find most discouraging is we have been calling on this government in good faith to create a health human resources strategy. How are we going to train? How are we going to retain? How are we going to make sure we attract people? Nothing. Zero. So it is about equipment. It's about training. It's about retention. And it is about those deadly overhead costs that are causing so many people, including radiologists and community clinics, to think about closing up shop.
2: Okay, so can this be done, do you think, quickly? If, if If an effort were made, if the government were to say we're going to make this a priority, do you think it could be done quickly?
0: Well, I think we have no choice. I mean, we need to see this government step up, and I think it starts with acknowledgement. If you read the letters from the specialists, from the family docs, from the radiologists, it's, We want to be part of the solution. Please engage with us. And there has been an abysmal lack of that kind of cooperative, collaborative process. Even we as opposition, Simi, laid out a plan that said, here are some things that need to be done quickly. We did that months ago, heard absolutely nothing. So I think it starts with acknowledging we have a crisis being willing to sit down, roll up our sleeves at the table, everyone working together. It's about outcomes. And, and again, you know, I find the letters when I read them, I'm absolutely devastated knowing that, you know, in the, in the letter from specialists, here's what it says. Patients are getting sicker and dying on our wait lists. If that isn't a call to action, I do not know what is.
2: Is this a question of spend the money now so we don't have to spend it later? Because if people are getting sicker on these waiting lists, is that not just, there's no cost savings there. That is just going to cost us much more in the long run.
0: Well, it absolutely is from a financial perspective, but what it is going to cost us is is British Columbians who are discovering far too late that they have a later stage of cancer or that they need breast imaging in British Columbia and can't get on the list. And so the ultimate price that people will pay in this province is an outcome that is not uh, that is not ha- a happy one from their healthcare perspective. We have people that are potentially dying. I think there is no worse example uh, of an outcome uh, that that we want that we do not want to see in British Columbia. So of course there needs to be investment. Uh, we certainly saw the government lay out proudly the fact that they're going to have a substantive surplus in the uh, year ahead. Then I suggest they start it and start sitting down with these healthcare professionals, I've met with them. I met with the radiologists, listened to their story, and was absolutely terrified, thinking that people are sitting and waiting. And ultimately, radiologists described that to me as we could face a tsunami of cancer cases. I am calling on Adrian Dix today to stand up in his press conference this afternoon and outline for British Columbians exactly what he's going to do to deal with these situations. Do
2: you think we have a, um, a crisis in cancer care? We saw that story in the Globe and Mail last week about this, and that certainly grabbed a lot of headlines. Do you think we're at that point now?
0: Well, I think when you see successive letters from uh, specialists in British Columbia, from people who have been so proud of the cancer care outcomes in British Columbia, we used to we'd lead the country. And and certainly I heard at the Union of BC Municipalities from a group of of, uh, professionals that spoke to us that they are deeply concerned about our our ability to uh, meet the cancer care outcomes that British Columbians deserve. We should all be concerned about that. And those of us who are in elected office, we need to stand up, work together. And as I said, Simi, obviously we hold the government to account, but we also laid out a plan. We said, here are some things when it came to primary care and when it, when it comes to training. You know, we're now going to take a look at what do we need to do in terms of specialists and radiologists, nurses in British Columbia. So I think all of us should be concerned. And, and I think what British Columbians want to see is the same kind of approach. When we faced a pandemic, it was all hands on deck. You know, later today, we're, I understand we're going to get an update on influenza season. That matters. But I can tell you what, a crisis in the healthcare system, I certainly hope that uh, Minister Dix is prepared to answer those questions today as well. I hope so, too. Listen, thank
2: you so much for your time this morning. Always a pleasure. Thanks, Simmy. Appreciate that. That's Shirley Bond, BC Liberal MLA and critic for the Ministry of Health. Yes, there is a press conference this afternoon, one o'clock, with Health Minister Adrian Dix. It is supposed to be about the upcoming in cold and influenza season. But as also pointed out, you can bet there are going to be plenty of questions uh, about this situation too. That you cannot. Anybody who's dealt with cancer diagnosis in their family, I have. And you know what? Every day is painful from the moment you get that diagnosis until you know what the treatment is actually going to be. It's difficult. We cannot let people wait like this. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk about a four-day work week. Now, is this something that you would love to do? In the city of Merritt, city workers there have been granted the right to work four-day weeks. In fact, they are going to try to pioneer this as in terms of the entire workplace is going to go in this direction. And results from a six-month trial in the UK with 70 different companies participating show they're committing to a scheme where employees get 100% pay for 80% of the normal hours work. Now, we know that they're still doing 100% of the work, Right but you're squeezing it into four days instead. So to talk more about this, we're joined by our Raji Sohal. Raji, this sounds pretty good, right? Four-day work week?
4: (laughs) It sounds good, I think, depending on the kind of work you do. So for some jobs, I feel like it's more clear cut And some people have been doing this for a long time. In fact, when I was a kid, uh, gosh, my dad did this uh, four day work week scheme for, I think, 30 years. And it was amazing because we're in a big family. So my dad would uh, work 10 hour days, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. The Friday he would have open to handle errands, to pick us up from school. And we just loved it. We loved that quality time with him. But it worked out because he did factory work. And so with manual labor, that was an easy thing to do. But we work in news, you and I, see me and I find that you can't really do it in news. A four-day work week is really hard just because news is always happening and I'm always plugged into what's happening and locally what's going on and internationally what's going on. So I don't know that it would work for me. But I have found these studies really compelling just because so many people are shown to be just as productive, if not more productive, on the four day work week. And I think that's because you just end up enjoying your work more because you've had that time off to rest properly. One thing I will say is that I've noticed that I am happier overall when I stick to working eight hours a day. And the days where I end up working 10 hours or 12 hours, Overall, I have way less energy. I'm a bit uh, of a grump. And so I do think having boundaries around that kind of stuff can really help. I talked to one woman. She's a creative director with her own advertising firm. Her name's Rihanna Evoy. And she committed to a four day work week a while ago, actually. And she says that being happier. Uh, in her time off with those, with that extra day of rest makes her work even harder during the work week.
6: I do work four days a week. It's really difficult to maintain that to truthfully, not for me as much as it is the boundaries around those, those I work with. So my clients, uh, contributors, anyone that is not on the four day work week have a hard time understanding that I'm not available on Friday, so really having strong boundaries around that is pretty key. I decided to do it because of my own well-being. Um, I'm not really as interested in working long hours. It just feels very unhealthy to me. So it made sense to me to go to a four-day work week. It just made absolute it was clear. It was no, no, no harm done. And I've been doing it before. I was doing it before this whole four-day work week situation. Uh, happened because I just noticed that I was just happier and able to work and took time out for myself was really important. And it was, just really clear for me to continue that process and to just work four days.
4: And you mentioned that some people aren't aware of your four-day work week so they might get in touch with you thinking that right. you're going to respond
6: on the one of the other three days of the week. How do you handle that and what are your tips for other people? Well, the boundary has to be made and it has to be clear. And I think that if that if I waver, then I'm not really doing anyone any favors or doing myself any favors. For me, I really do unplug. So Thankfully, there's so many more ways in which to do Do Not Disturbs on your phones. My Slack can be turned off. Um, my emails can be not checked. I don't actually have emails come to my phone. Um, I have to actually go on a, on a desktop to see them. So I'm not really bothered on the days off. Um, my email signature clearly states my working hours. So if it is confusing, people can um, continuously read about it every time I send an email, (laughs) just to be clear. But I think it's really about unplugging and being very serious about it. And, um, you know, just having boundaries around that is really important and really hard to do because it's not, uh, normal for everyone around me.
2: Hmm. You know, this is interesting. I, uh, the four day work week is not going to work with every job, right? As, as you were saying earlier, Raji, I, I'm more of a proponent of the five or six hour work day. Like I think that's, you can cram a lot into that. I, and there's been books written about this. There's a great podcast about that too. The five hour work day where, yeah, you yeah. know, no lunches, no walks to Starbucks, don't take a whole lot of breaks. Can you cram your work into an intense five or six hours and then be done with it for the day? And, and I think that that would almost work for everybody.
4: I think so, too. In fact, there's been studies that show that people who work harder in just a condensed amount of time work better. Um, so I would love that. The only thing is, like like we've been talking about, it really depends on the kind of work that you're doing. One point that Rihanna brought up there, and, and I'm talking about a person who she's done some of the biggest uh, ad campaigns we've ever seen in Canada, billboards, commercials, and, and she's gone down to a four-day work week, which makes me think if she can do it, A lot of us could do it if we just worked more efficiently and having that time off, that restful time can really help with it. I think about the times in my life where I've gone, you know, three weeks without a day off or I remember once going a month and a half without a day off. I was not happy. (laughs) And I wasn't happy because I didn't have time to eat properly. I didn't have time to go to the gym. I didn't have time to take care of myself. And that overworking uh, really it, yeah. it caught up to me. But there's also, Simi, I think this perception of, and I, fi- I struggle with this, I never want to be perceived as lazy. So I will often overwork even though there's nobody like over my shoulder, uh, checking to see what I'm doing, but I will often overwork, put in extra hours, just almost to myself to make sure I don't, uh, come across as lazy. And uh, our our guest there, she just mentioned that technology can make things better, but technology also makes things worse uh, because we can access all these apps on our phone to do our work. And we've always got our phones on us so that we could potentially just kind of always be working. So I think the boundary she makes, uh, the point about there is very important.
2: It is important, but also we already struggle with that with our regular work week, right? We struggle with boundaries now, that's a problem. So I, I, the 10 hour day though, it feels like, and I know there's a lot of people out there who do this right now that they have the option of doing that in their workplace. I mean, heck, the entire Vancouver police department does that, right? Officers do that. Uh, They do four day on and four day off. So if it works for them, great. I just, I think it is a long day for some people that it might cause you to tire out more. So I just feel like what workers really need, what I'm hearing here is that they need options. They need a better work-life balance.
4: Yeah, I have to agree with you on that one. And not just um, options with the hours of the day, but how some of that time is spent. I know some people who work really, really well from 5 to 7 a.m. They work really strong during those hours. They take the day off and come back to work at night and then they do it again the next day just because that suits them. Now, if you can get away with that and that in your work and that suits you personally, then wonderful. But we could stand to be a little bit more flexible That uh, on the fact that just people have different needs. People have different personalities and different things that That's work for true. them.
2: Very true. Raji, thank you. Thanks, Simi. Interesting discussion. That is our Raji Sohal there talking about, well, really flexibility at work. Like, is a four-day work week something that you think would work for you? Merit's doing this, right? They want to put the city on a four-day work week there. Is that something that you think you could do? Do you want to work 10 hours, four days a week? Or would you think, I'd rather have a shorter work day, cram more work into it, skip that lunch hour and all those trips to Starbucks and whatever, and get all your work done faster?